Welcome to My Friends Don't Know, a podcast about news and politics. I am your host and co-host, Gapi. This is episode number 13, and I want to start it off with another free food announcement. Um, this one is coming from the Friendly Fridge. They got eight locations across uh, New York City. I'm going to list them all for you. And they offer a bunch of free food. You could uh, drop off some food if, if you're able to. Um, some examples of their menus like bread, potatoes, milk, beetroots, frozen, eggplants. Um, they got some microwavable meals there. I'm seeing some food trays. But their stock, some produce. Um, if you don't need this information, please spread this to whoever you know that may need it or whoever you know that could give it to somebody that may need it. These are the eight locations. Bronx, 5977 Broadway, Harlem, 352 West 116th Street, Bushwick, 190 Knickerbocker Ave, Best Eye, 133 Van Buren Street, Best Eye, 1114 Bedford Ave, Crown Heights, 1144 Bergen Street, Brownsville, 234 Glenmore Ave, Prospect Lefferts Gardens, 1110 Nostrand Ave. So if you could spread that information out there, we'd greatly appreciate it. We know it'll help somebody that's in need right now. Tough times right now. Um, I want to get into the charges brought against Rayshard Brooks' killers. As ominous as it sounds, since the last episode, there's been another murder at the hands of police, ex-police now. Um, let's start with the facts. Last Friday, June 12th, Friday night, uh, Wendy's employee calls 911 to say that a man appears drunk and asleep behind the wheel of his car at the Wendy's drive through Officer Brosnan was the first to respond. He arrived on the scene at 10.42 p.m. At that point, he wakes up Mr. Brooks, who's in his car, and has him pull into a nearby parking space. According to the Times, Officer Brosnan appears to be unsure whether he should let Mr. Brooks sleep in the car or should take further action. At 10.49, seven minutes later, he contacts police dispatch and requests that another police officer come to the scene. Office, Ex-officer Rolf arrives six minutes later, and after speaking with ex-officer Brosnan, begins to question Mr. Brooks, who is calm, friendly, and compliant with the officers. Ex-officer Rolf administers a field sobriety test on Mr. Brooks, who eventually admits that he has been drinking and but says that he isn't too drunk to drive. Mr. Brooks also asks ex-officer Rolf if he can just lock up his car and walk to his sister's home, which he says is nearby, and that his daughter's there. They had just finished celebrating his daughter's birthday. I believe he said that his sister's home was like five, six minutes away from that Wendy's. I could be mistaken. At that moment right there, that could have saved Rashard Brooks' life. The officers could have exercised some discretion, either if they weren't 
on too many calls that night, either off a ride to his sister's home, call his sister to come pick him up, or say, you know what, you're too drunk, why don't we call you an Uber so they can take you home. In Connecticut, I just seen a video where a police officer saw this white man drinking vodka out of a vodka bottle in a car. The cop takes the bottle and tells the man, get the hell out of here. I repeat it. The cop took the bottle of vodka from the driver's hands and said, get the hell out of here. No ticket, no cuffs, no questions, nothing, just white privilege. But I'm going to keep going. Ex-officer Rofe, in what appears to be an attempt to get Brooks to admit he is too drunk to drive, asks him why he wants to go home. Mr. Brooks responds, I don't want to be in violation of anybody. When ex-officer Rolfe asks Brooks if he can give him a breath test, Mr. Brooks responds, I don't want to refuse anything. The two officers and Mr. Brooks at that point have been talking for nearly half an hour, peacefully. By the time ex-officer Rolf gets the results of the breathalyzer, it's 11.23. 11.23, this started with Officer Brosnan arriving at 10.42 and debating whether he should let Mr. Brooks sleep it off or if he should do something else. Almost 40 minutes later, at 11.23, he tells Mr. Brooks that he's had too much to drink to be driving and goes to handcuff him. Mr. Brooks seems compliant at first and then tries to break free of the officers who then try to tackle him to the ground. A cell phone video of the incident recorded by a bystander shows Mr. Brooks and the two officers scuffling on the ground. Rolf tells Brooks to stop fighting and warns him that he's going to get him that he's going to tase him. Officer Brosnan has at that point unholstered his taser. Mr. Brooks gets a hold of it during the scuffle, breaks free, stands up, punches Officer Rolf. Brooks does not try to use the taser. Officer Rolf, ex-officer Rolf, fires his taser at Brooks, who then begins to run away with ex-officer Brosnan's taser still in his hand. Rolf follows close behind, continuing to try to use his taser to stun Brooks from behind. Brooks can be seen running across the parking lot with Rolf close behind, without stopping running, Brooks half turns around, points the taser towards Officer Rolf, and fires it above his head. Rolf then drops his taser, unholsters his handgun, and fires three times at Mr. Brooks in his back as Mr. Brooks was running away. Mr. Brooks then falls to the ground. All of this happened in the span of about a minute since the officers tried to place Mr. Brooks under arrest. The two officers stand over Mr. Brooks as he's laying there dying. One officer stands on Mr. Brooks' shoulder, and the one who shot him, Rolf, kicks him. 
as he's there dying. It takes two minutes for them to begin to provide any medical assistance. Two minutes sounds like a long time, but I'm going to give you an example. One Mississippi, two Mississippi, three Mississippi, four Mississippi, five Mississippi, six Mississippi, seven Mississippi, eight Mississippi, nine Mississippi, ten Mississippi. That's ten seconds. You saw how, how, how slow that was, right? Ten seconds sounds like not that much time, but one Mississippi, two Mississippi. I would have to get to 120 Mississippis for it to be two minutes. It took that long for them to administer any kind of medical assistance after shooting that man three times in the back, standing on his shoulder and kicking him. Two minutes. The ambulance got there six minutes after the shooting, took Mr. Brooks to the hospital eight minutes later, and Mr. Brooks, who just finished celebrating his daughter's eighth birthday, died. On Wednesday, the Fulton County DA Paul Howard announced that Rolfe would face 11 criminal charges, including felony murder and aggravated assault with a deadly weapon. Devin Brosnan is facing three charges, including aggravated assault and violation of oath. Some people are saying the officers weren't in the wrong. That is not correct. When they say that, that's based off of their opinion. Whether this biased or not is based off of their opinion. I'm going to give you the facts. The main reason that the officer is being charged with felony murder is because, one, he shot Mr. Brooks in the back. In Atlanta, it's illegal for officers to even tase you in the back. He shot Mr. Brooks in the back three times and immediately after shooting him yelled, I got him, ran over to the body and kicked him. They spent 40 minutes talking with him, speaking with Mr. Brooks, calmly, patted him down. They, there was a bulge in his pocket, and the cops asked him, what's that bulge in your pocket? And Mr. Brooks responded, it's just some money. I just came from my daughter's birthday party. They believed him. They didn't check. There was no fear for their life at any point. When that officer shot Mr. Brooks, he was a good 15 to 18 feet away, according to the DA. 15 to 18 feet away, running away. With a, cha with a taser that was already discharged, he posed no immediate threat to the officer's life or to the bystander's life. Remember, this was at a Wendy's drive-thru. There's a whole line of cars at this drive-thru. The officer that murdered Mr. Brooks shot a car, a bystander's car that was there, shot the car. There was no reason to shoot Mr. Brooks. The other cop that was on the scene, officer, ex-officer Brosnan, he's being charged with aggravated assault for standing on Mr. Brooks' shoulder as he lay on the ground dying. He's cooperating with the DA, right? But as soon as the DA announced that, maybe not even an hour later, his lawyers were on CNN immediately shutting down the statement saying that their client is not a witness to the state, for the state. Why? Because imagine you were involved in a shooting where your partner murdered another black man. 
unnecessarily. And the DA announces that you're going to be the state's witness. You know how many threats that man must have received? You're going to snitch on a cop, right? This is what I meant when I said that there's toxic gang behavior in law enforcement. Because this is where those good cops are supposed to show their support. Because one of them did, did their part, right? He's going to testify against a bad cop and put the bad cop in prison. This is where those good cops are supposed to step up and say, yo, we support you. Go ahead, put that, put that man in prison. He doesn't represent us. I debated whether or not to play this. I saw this online, but I figured if, if I'm going to speak on this murder, the least I could do is play this clip and, and let y'all hear Mr. Brooks' own words about his life. Okay, well, I'm Rayshard Brooks, um, 27 years of age, uh, have three kids, you know, I'm happily married. I want, you know, things to be bettered, you know, within probation and parole and also monitoring. If you do some things that's wrong, you pay your debts to society, and that's the bottom line. And, you know, I just feel like some of the system could, you know, look at us as individuals we do have lives you know it's just a mistake we made you know and not just do us as if we are animals it's making us as individuals feel like we're locked in boxes even though we have been incarcerated it's hurting us but it's hurting our family the most you know because we have kids we have jobs we have a lot of things that you know, life, situations. We are individual people. So as we go through these trials and tribulations, it's, it's, it's hurting our kids and it's, it's, it's taking away from our families. You have to try and go out, you know, make means, you know, and yet my kids, you know, I want to spend some time with my kids, but I really don't have the time, you know, I have to try and go out, you know, make money for this, make money for bills, or try and get myself back on track. It's just a lot of pressure, you know, with, you know, just having all of that on your shoulder and on your back. You know, it's just a lot of pressure. And some people, they just can't deal with it. You know, it's restricting us. They're telling us, hey, you can't, you have a curfew and, you know, certain things, you have to be in a house. You know, just restricting us from the everyday life. It's just hard for us, you know, at times because we're trying to do the right thing and we're restricted. Probation is not there with you every day, like a mentor or something. They're not taking you out to find a job. I feel like it should be a way for you to have some kind of person, like a mentor assigned to you to, you know, keep your track, keep you in the direction you need to be going. But here yet, I'm trying. You know, I'm not the type of person to give up, you know, and I'm going to keep going until I make it to where I want to be. <laughs> Rest in peace, Rashard Brooks. I pray that your family 
gets justice. And my heart hurts for your children. After the DA announced the charges, the Atlanta police officers walked off the job. And those that were scheduled to come in called out. Saying they called out sick, saying it was blue flu. Police officers walked off of their jobs because two of their own were being held accountable. Let that sink in. And also, please, please, I always say, check me if I misspoke. Let me know. Because I have yet to see a good cop speak up about that murder. I really haven't seen any speak up. I will take this back if I see it. But look at Buffalo. The cop pushed that 75-year-old man to the floor, cracked his head open. He's bleeding. That man is still in the hospital, unable to walk. The cop gets suspended for that. And that entire squad quit in protest because the cop got suspended. Nah, we need reform. We need reform. Defund the police. I'm going to get into that next week. Defund the police. But we got to restructure the city and state budgets. Police don't need... Yo, police do not need the surplus military gear and weapons that our military doesn't use overseas because they came back home. We don't need to give that to the police. Who are they fighting? What's the purpose? Protect and serve? Are we going to give these small cities tanks and all these and all this wild gear? There's no way to segue into this, but racism is taught. It's not it's not something you're born with. That phrase is literal. Racism is literally taught sometimes even via the education system in the south. Not according to Vice President Mike Pence, who said recently that racism is a media narrative. It doesn't exist. Racism is taught. Let's talk about the Confederacy. We hear about NASCAR banning the Confederate flag, Confederate statues being torn down or, or brought down. And you have people shouting about protect our heritage. Let's get some facts. Well, let's let's def- let's define heritage. Heritage, according to the dictionary, heritage is or are valued objects and qualities such as cultural traditions, unspoiled countryside, and historic buildings that have been passed down from previous generations. You know how long the Confederacy lasted? Four years. Four years but there's all these statues and debates about honoring these white people that fought for their right to own slaves that's because of the daughters of the confederacy let me play y'all this clip about who they are what they did and how they literally brainwashed generations of people with misinformation listen to this Listen to how this textbook describes slavery. 
The master often had a barbecue or a picnic for his slaves. Then they had a great frolic. Even while working in the cotton fields, they sang songs. The beat of the music and the richness of their voices made work seem light. Yikes, that's from History of Georgia, a textbook published in 1954 that was taught across junior high schools in Georgia for decades. That sort of language is part of an intellectual movement called the Lost Cause, a distorted version of American Civil War history that's been prevalent in the South for a long time. It took shape soon after the defeat of the Confederate States in the war, when Southern historians like Edward Pollard and former Confederate General Jubal Early started preserving the South's perspective through their writings. They framed the Confederate cause as a heroic defense of the Southern way of life against the overwhelming forces in the North. That narrative has a few basic tenets. The glorification of Confederate soldiers who died for a cause they believed in, the belief that slavery was a benevolent institution, and maybe most importantly, that slavery was not the root cause of the war. The Lost Cause is one of the most notoriously effective efforts to rewrite history, and it was done by the losing side. So how did it become so deeply rooted in Southern memory? Blame the United Daughters of the Confederacy. The UDC was founded in Nashville in 1894 to preserve Confederate culture for generations to come. The women who made up the group descended from elite antebellum families, and they used their social and political clout to spread the pro-Southern version of the war as real history. You've probably seen their efforts to honor the Confederacy, but maybe you didn't know it was the UDC. They're the ones who covered the Southern landscape with memorials for Confederate leaders and soldiers. They used their fundraising and lobbying skills to pressure local governments into erecting monuments in prominent public spaces like courthouses and state capitals. Installed here next to the state capitol by the United Daughters of the Confederacy. The United Daughters of the Confederacy donated this memorial to the city back in the 30s. They put them along roadsides and in parks. Any place that was remotely relevant to the Confederacy was memorialized. By the early 20th century, the UDC had 100,000 members and chapters spread all over the country, but mostly in former Confederate states. And there's a reason they grew so quickly during that time. So we're talking about roughly three decades after the end of the war, and the Confederate veterans themselves are beginning to die off. So there is this push to find ways to commemorate it, because the big challenge by 1900 was there's a new generation of white Southerners being born, and they never experienced the, the war years. That push is visible. Most of the Confederate monuments were erected during the UDC's height of influence. There's a rhetoric around monuments that we want to get the this thing built before all of that generation has died off. And the reason we want it is to teach future generations about those men. Dr. Karen Cox wrote the book on the UDC, and I asked her if it was fair to say the group established the lost cause as historical fact in the South. Oh my God, yeah. They were the leaders of the lost cause into the 20th century, and they made it a movement about vindication. Just to give you an idea of how effective they were, they successfully lobbied for a Confederate memorial in Arlington National Cemetery, which U.S. President Woodrow Wilson proudly unveiled to a cheering crowd. Now that's influence, right? Monuments are the least of what they did. Uh, what? I mean, they, they are the most visible and tangible, but the work with children was far more influential. It turns out a central UDC objective is shaping how children think about the war and their Southern heritage. One of their most powerful tools, textbooks. 
Take a look at this pamphlet called A Measuring Rod for Textbooks. It was written by the illustrious Southern historian Miss Mildred Rutherford, an educator, orator, and author of Southern history textbooks. She's also very pro-slavery. The pamphlet announced the formation of a textbook review committee featuring prominent Southerners like five former Confederate generals. This group was committed to spreading the truths of Confederate history, so they instructed school boards to reject any textbooks that did not accord full justice to the South. And they urged libraries to deface every book in their collection that didn't measure up by writing the words unjust to the South clearly on its cover. This pamphlet was shared widely with school boards throughout the South, and UDC-backed committees closely monitored history books to make sure Northern influence never reached classrooms. So the core language of an approved textbook aligned precisely with that of the lost cause. You know, stuff like, The Confederacy lost in the war between the states, but Georgia never forgot to honor her Confederate soldiers. History of Georgia was on the UDC's approved list. It was also written by E. Merton Coulter, a self-described Southern historian and historian-described white supremacist. They understand that how you educate, who wins the writing game, who wins the, the battle over history, ultimately wins the war. That's the big fight for the UDC. But their work with children went further than the classrooms. The UDC formed an auxiliary group called the Children of the Confederacy, which was designed to get kids born in former Confederate states to actively participate in their version of history. Group leaders had kids recite call and response truths from something called the Confederate Catechism. Children up to the age of 18 would compete and be rewarded for memorizing long passages of lost cause rhetoric. So it would be like an after school thing, you know, like that was your club. You would go after school to the meeting of the children of the Confederacy and your leader might teach you songs of the South like Dixie or other songs that were considered Southern patriotic songs. They would have them write essays, go visit the veterans, and learn this catechism. Children were also the centerpiece of their community's monument unveilings, like this living flag at the dedication of the Stonewall Jackson Monument in Richmond. Yes, those are school children. The UDC's efforts shaped the identities of children who grew up with the lost cause. They made history personal, and that made their story last longer. Generations of generations of children learning that narrative in a variety of ways grow up to be, you know, segregationist in the 50s and 60s, because that's been drilled into them since they were children. After World War I, the UDC started losing steam, but the damage was done. The monuments were in place, and the textbooks they wrote remained in Southern classrooms until the late 70s. And the women's group did it all without the right to vote or participate in politics. You can still get glimmers of this lost cause memory of the war from people who will always choose to see it through the personal. And I think the UDC, to a great extent, was that was their goal. So the next time someone says the Confederate monuments are about remembering our history, just know that that's exactly what the United Daughters of the Confederacy wants you to think. That clip was from Vox. So when we talk about systemic racism, this is it. That's part of it. It's not a conspiracy theory. Why do you think they haven't named the KKK a terrorist organization? Because that would mean that we'd have terrorists in our law enforcement, social services, first responders, elected officials, lawmakers, senators, teachers, doctors, pharmacists. You understand how ingrained the KKK is in our society? Black people are being lynched all over the country to this day. They just found someone hanging from a tree half a mile away from me. Half a mile up from there, somebody hung a, a, a stuffed monkey on a light pole. Houston, Los Angeles, we talking about within one week, four people within one week. And the police ruled all of them suicides? You kidding me? 
Racism is a media narrative? Lawmakers saying there's no systemic racism because Obama was elected twice. Let me point something out to y'all. Y'all could Google or whatever you use to search your information. You could look this up. Last week or the week when that federal officer in Oakland was murdered during the protest, Fox News ran throughout multiple shows, multiple different anchors, they were running that nonstop, nonstop, blaming it on the protesters. When it came out that the people who murdered those federal officers were from the Boogaloo group, a far-right domestic terrorist, well, they're not labeled terrorists, well, a far-right group that pulled up, the protests weren't even near where that officer was murdered. They pulled up in a white van, opened the door, and started shooting Drove, went into the protest and blended in. They blamed the protesters. They shot a protester who was trying to tear down one of the Confederate statues. They were behind those threats that prompted Trump to label Antifa a terrorist group. The agencies investigated and they said, no, it's the Boogaloo group. You heard about that since then? Nope. You heard any corrections? Nah. He still says, still says, that Antifa's terrorists. I'm not defending Antifa. I don't know much about them. I don't know. I don't, I don't really trust these, these wild organizations like that. But it fit his narrative, so he went ahead with labeling Antifa terrorists, but not the Boogaloo Boys or the KKK or the Proud Boys who organized that Tiki Torch rally and murdered, them, murdered that protester in Charlottesville, driving a car straight through the protest. Nope. Those aren't terrorists. There's some very good people on that side. Listen, if you're tired of hearing about racism and Black Lives Matter, go hide under a rock and wait till we tell you it's all clear because this is at the forefront. Real reform is being debated and legislated. And, and say what you will about Kyrie, Kyrie Irving as a basketball player, but he's absolutely right. The rush to bring back sports is a rush to bring back distractions. There's people that can't wait for the NBA to come back. Desperate for the sports to come back. And there's no judgment. Live your life. Live your life. Enjoy it. There are people that will still fight for your right. Even if you don't engage and go out. But in the grand scheme of things, life is short, yo. Life is short and the world don't end with you. Like, like that phrase goes, plant trees knowing you'll never even get to enjoy their shade. And speaking of rushing towards distractions, look, they're not opening up the country because it's safe. They desperate to get you to go out and spend money, go to restaurants, go to bars, get lit, go shop, spend your money. States that rush to reopen are now facing rising numbers of coronavirus. And side note, if your timeline has memes and people saying... See what I told you first there's corona, then there's no corona, and then the whole world protesting. Now they back to talking about corona. They just lying to you, trying to brainwash you. COVID numbers didn't go down. Not across the country. In New York it went down for sure. But across the country it never went down. The thing is, you gotta understand the way news cycles work. And that these news networks ratings is what drives the business, right? So I I'll give you an example. All the networks talking about coronavirus. George Floyd is murdered. 
The officers aren't arrested. People start protesting in Minneapolis. The first day, totally peaceful protest. The second day, that undercover cop from St. Paul goes to the protest, breaks the glass at the AutoZone shop, and in response to that, the police start shooting tear gas at the crowd. The next day, protests all across the country. Now, let's play pretend and pretend you run CNN. Let's say you the person that decides what gets reported. And your options are you could continue reporting on the rising cases of COVID, have that dominate your news cycles. Your anchors will bring on guests and interview them and we'll get a bunch of science. But what will happen? That means that while CNN is only covering COVID, MSNBC and CBS and Fox and all these other networks, they're covering the protests live as they're happening. Who do you think the public is going to tune into? Another report about COVID virus and the numbers going up? Or live coverage of one of the biggest protests we've ever seen? Every single state and some countries around the world protesting. You would be fired from your position if you didn't report on the protests live as they happen. That's how the news works. If something more pressing is happening, that's going to dominate the, the airtime. But the reporting on COVID never stopped. The information was there every single day. I bring up these memes because if you're not careful, your perception of something can create a false reality. And it's important to be aware of who you give your attention to, who you receive your information from. And to stay on that subject, look, the first night or two of the protests in New York, I stayed home. I've been to protests a few times. But, you know, when the protest started, I stayed home. I was still hesitant because of coronavirus. But once Saturday came, I woke up feeling like, yo, what's more important to you? And fighting for black lives a thousand percent took priority over my health. I'm not sorry to say that. It is what it is. I was safe. And the protest, the protest, it was a beautiful thing to see. It was so many people there. So many people handing out masks and hand sanitizers. People were, were, were protesting as safe as they could. And if it sounds hypocritical of me to say, to encourage people to stay safe, it's not. I mean, keep wearing your mask. The importance of wearing a mask is one thing I saw that stuck with me. And I was like, well, you see, that makes sense. And it's a wild comparison, but stick with me. So if we... <laughs> This is comparing masks to jeans. So if we both naked and you pee on me, we both got pee on us, right? You got pee on your skin, you and then you peed on me. If I'm wearing jeans and you naked and you pee on me, you got pee on you. My body may have some pee, but my jeans absorbed most of it. If you got jeans and I got jeans and you pee, you peeing on yourself. You peeing on your leg and your jeans is going to absorb it, maybe a little drip. But your pee ain't getting on me. And that is why wearing masks is so important. So to my friends that don't know, I hope this helped keep you informed. To my friends that do know, check me, man. Maybe I misspoke. I am your host and co-host, Copy. Thank you for tuning in. I'll see y'all next week.